Okay, welcome back. Uh, we're reading from John Tarrant's The Light Inside the Darkness. So we'll go in order alphabetical. Cody, Daniel, Ellen, myself, um, Genev, Kim, Lori, Lynn, Milan, Peg, and Trotty. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. Okay. We're on God's feet. God's feet. To enter the realm of spirit, then, <clears throat> is only part of the solution to the dilemma proposed by this final process, life. The remaining art resides in living well, in the particulars of our movement through the day and night. And this means attending to the second impulse of inner life, being interested in the feet of God, the parts. Does anyone know what page we're on? Yeah, page 16. Well, now 16. That, that are still visible and have not ascended out of the picture. These toes and callous skin are the neglected element of the divine, the bit that touches the earth, the bit we have. This second impulse, simultaneous with and contradictory to the first, takes us toward the little and the disregarded. The valley world that is lovely, seductive, transcend, destructive of our illusions and also of our wisdom. Not the life eternal, but the life that we die of. Even full of loss, even full of disease, this aspect of existence too is good. It has its point of view and its disciples, disciplines, I'm sorry. It does not replace, but intermingles with the spirit. This lower part is bound on the wheel of time. It loves the sound of rain and the smell of basil. It stands at the foot of the bed, feeling the heart enlarge before the face of the sleeping child. It is the servant who tends to life, who tests and touches life, who is life. The lower part is what we offer back to eternity, our contribution and it, and it makes a way for eternity to live through us. In accordance with the Mediterranean tradition and the current conventions of, de of depth psych psychology, let us call it soul. 
In this usage, soul is not taken in the theoretical sense of an immortal being putting up for the night in the inn of the body, that is spirit. Soul is that part of us which touches and touched by the world. Through soul, we connect with each other and are made less lonely, <clears throat> not metaphysically, but in a tangible human way. The soul's pagan joy. May we take, we take just a moment after each paragraph in case anyone wants to ask anything. Okay. And, and I think I have a, a kind of a continuing question as we read this, and that is, is this contradictory to the idea that there's no self? Peg, do you want to say anything about that? Um, no, I think you should read it on its merits and not um, uh, quarrel with it or, you know, um, uh, I think what you have to do is see what it is that he's saying and see how it rests with you. Okay. Can I say something? Sure. I think it was on the first or second page that he mentioned that the terms soul and spirit, um, <clears throat> I, I don't recall exactly, but that he's using them for explaining, starting explaining what he is about. <laughs> so he indicated that actually he does not use those terms as um, taken for granted. At least uh, that's what I recall uh, from maybe at the beginning. Yeah, this early part of the book is really um, creating his definition of these two terms. Mm, yeah. So it's not the conventional meanings that we have, you know, probably known from the past. Okay, you're ready to move on? Yep. Okay. Thanks. The soul's pagan joy. In love with the multitudinous world, soul is pagan. It falls headlong into matter, scattering its affections. It likes to merge with chocolate, gardening, a fast car, a lost love. And while it brings delight, it brings misery too, joining with rage, jealousy, and vanity. Where spirit is certain of its path, soul, like Dante in the dark wood, is always losing its way. <laughs> it obsesses and broods like Proust. It is drawn back and back into a childhood still vivid and full of causes. It is with our souls that we truly inhabit our lives, tasting the fresh black coffee, so delicious, so bad for us, and the kiss so brief and full of consequences. Soul is always learning, always fallible. It develops well or ill. It grows and deepens in response to our late learned tenderness toward it. Through, through soul, we bless our lives and come to love them in all their moods and aspects. 
So you um, no doubt recognize these as aspects of your path, right? Aspects yeah. of your spiritual journey. I guess it could keep changing also. Mm-hmm. Using what the spirit has thrown out, soul surrenders to the personal, descending happily into the particulars, as if coming down a grand stair into the swirl of a ballroom. For the soul, what is lost endures like a perfume after the dancer has gone. In the soul's realm, we have stories and an imagined life. We have experience, desire, and love. It's me. Soul is weak because it loves. No, actually, it's me. No. Oh, okay. Go on. I was just giving the pause. Soul is weak because it loves, which is, of course, its strength. Soul is creative. It produces something invisible out of matter. All love is the love of God, it declares, and plunges into the first kiss into a glass of Shiraz, into saving the planet, into eating a bowl of steamed clams, into remodeling the kitchen. Soul connects and loses itself in the connection. It falls and falls, it falls into beauty. Dense, oh. <laughs> Denser than the spirit, soul gets in the way of the arriving light just enough, delaying it, making it linger. It provides a way for those who have to live in the world and respect it. When the light descends into common things and people, the girl Vermeer painted, the jug we use to pour water, the letter we write, all just as they are with their thick life, are raised toward the gaze of eternity. Soul's true center is the journey of consciousness. Otherwise, it can identify no grand principles. Soul doesn't serve other purposes. The taste of life is its own fulfillment. The purpose of a young girl, the purpose of the tempest, the purpose of the coastline of Tasmania, the purpose of fresh grief is revealed in its own being. The point is not to transcend our lives, but that our least moment has the royal stain of morality about it. No, mortality. Mortality. <laughs> I think it's Milan. No, it's uh, Lynn. Oh, 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 yes. You're after Lori, right. Giving it the pause. You don't want us to pause. Okay. We can pause. That's fine. Yeah. Don't worry. Pausing is good. Soul brings meaning to experience, including the thoughtful, reflective part of our being and embracing to what we know most dimly about ourselves and sometimes shudder at secret passions, and insomnias, helpless, almost indestructible longings, despair, 
and the continuing undercurrent of knowledge that some losses are irretrievable. It brings the possibility of self-knowledge, of an informed compa compassion and an integrity based on experience. It has its own unique connection with the deep springs of our being. Well, I guess I'll just uh, comment. Uh, I, I thought this was the first day. Obviously, I've missed at least a day. But he sure does describe what it is to be a human being, doesn't he? Very yeah. beautifully. And, and for me, he describes what it is that we often try to avoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you may be saying the same thing. Alan, right? Well, yeah, that's human. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Is it me, Emily? Mm -hmm. Okay. Soul loves to include and to learn. It is always trying to embrace things to inhabit the brokenness of the world. Its light is made real by the surrounding dark. It's bounty earned by the perilous journey. Soul does not abolish the difficulty of our lives, but brings a music to our pains. Its gift is to make us less perfect and more whole. Oh, I love that line. I like that. That's, too. Very, that's very cool. <laughs> You ready? Mm -hmm. The conversation between spirit and soul. Every journey toward wholeness involves the interplay of spirit and soul. Neither is sufficient alone, for we are hybrid beings and cannot confine life to a single purpose. I imagine the conversation between spirit and soul might begin like that of so many couples with a description of each from the other's point of view. This is more than a summary of the misunderstandings between them. Through showing the weakness of each view, we sidle up to a refreshed sense of their necessary virtues. So knows that their spirit is too dominant, their spirit thinks. Clarity, certainty, and serenity. This may seem harmless at first, or even desirable, but since nothing is wholly pure, it leads us to grow heartless with the natural unkemptness of existence, and to think we can make order by imposing rigid rules. Then, inevitably, a shadow grows until all too often there is a fall into appetites swollen because so long suppressed. This is why we find scandals in the life of so many religious figures. Spirit forgets the necessity of imperfection 
and that within our very incomplexion, sorry, yeah, incomplexion, is opening where love appears. It does not understand the essentially domestic and mortal nature of human life. Identification with the spirit then is not the goal of the inner work. Such identification can have disastrous consequences because it leads us to think of ourselves as right, as immune from ordinary failures. We have to care for the whole of life so that spirit does not overwhelm our modest and preserving virtues, but finds its proper place, which is centered and limited. I'm sorry that you probably don't see me. I am on the phone, so I cannot hold both the book and the phone. Right. But we can hear you, so it's okay. Thank you. Or is back to me. Uh, on the other hand, spirit knows that soul in itself does not have enough of a center. When soul is too dominant, we lose connection with the infinite source and fall under the thrall of the world. Our attention is dispersed into objects and we struggle with the problem of our desire, which renews itself before it is completely satisfied. Soul wanders ever deeper into the marsh of emotion, looking for catharsis, the authentic story, the reason for its pain. It forgets that it can rise. If soul gives taste, touch, and habitation of the spirit, Spirit's contribution is to make soul lighter, able to escape its swampy authenticity, to enjoy the world without being gravely wounded by it. Spirit knows that soul longs to be released from its addictions, its obsessions with childhood, its night terrors, and to be able to say goodbye as well as hello, and with something like grace. In the light of the spirit, the task of life, profound and small, the labors in which soul is so engaged, from birth to dying, from sex to art, from walking in the city to eating pancakes with maple syrup, are transient and not to be relied on. Sacred, but not to be taken too seriously. Well, I'm just, I'm struck with uh, all the ways we find to make sense of the world. I mean, this is a way to make sense, it seems like to me. And then it makes me think of all the ways we try to make sense, maybe including Buddhism. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, is it my turn? Let's see. Are we on the next? I think it's Daniel, right? Oh, no, Daniel just read. Uh, so yeah, don't just be on, on the last paragraph of that section. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And spirit and soul. Oh, no, I'm on the spirit, spirit and soul. Okay. Spirit and soul outside the skin. The two powers of soul and spirit are not just inward events, not butterflies imprisoned in the body's cage. While in the main, while in the main, this book describes the individual journey, it is good to remember that soul and spirit also exist beyond us touching the mountains and streams, bridges, roads, and the ways we teach our children. Between them, they bring the glow of life to what we perceive. If a stream is dirty, so is the soul. If a forest is made into a wasteland, so is the spirit lost and disoriented. Mm. Spirit and soul deprivation have different symptoms. The missing sweetness in our cities, the homelessness and choked freeways, these are the public pains of the wounded soul. When we treat ourselves too much as machines, our actions come to bad ends. The worst consequence of the soul's neglect is a lack of love of our own lives, of each other, of the future, and of the suffering planet. Soul wants time and patience to confer loveliness. It wants to be wooed and longs to find the face of the beloved in the gardens and apartments of the city. Our panic over death, our helplessness and denial before plagues of the body such as AIDS, and our strange postmodern immune disorders. These are symptoms of an exhaustion, a weak connection with spirit. Spirit offers us the possibility of equanimity because it sees suffering as transformation. It knows that shopping doesn't stave off the terror of mortality. Only experience of participating in eternity will set our hearts at rest. Spirit's blessing is in its unpredictability and its predilection to descend on the heads of the despised and poor. For spirit, even the rocks and rivers are self, alive and as full of magic as our first love. We cannot do without either spirit or soul. Our task is to restore the world from our own treasure of inward richness, which in its subtle and in, in, inexorable way turns outward to that labor. Character and integrity appear. A great deal of our journey consists of alternating immersion in these two realms, spirit and soul. But if we are to find balance, another level of development is needed. This is the work of character, tempered by the suffering of soul's descent, leavened by the exuberance of spirits rising, 
Character is the matrix where spirit and soul meet. When we have character, we do not entirely surrender to either spirit or soul. And it is only when neither of these great forces occupies the whole field that they may begin a true conversation in our lives. Then this very pressure of opposites held in close company gives shape to our uniqueness and freedom. Under the press of these two great forces, the inner life becomes richer, more complex, and less fanatical. We become individual. What supports, what supports character in turn is integrity. I'm sorry? You're good. Okay. What supports character in turn is integrity. Integrity is the inner sense of wholeness and strength that arises out of our honesty with ourselves. It is the ability to make the right connections and the proper sacrifices to find a life that is both moral and spontaneous. Character and integrity develop over time. They recognize the soul's pleasure in common life and also the equanimity that comes from a link with the source of things. This is why the actions of a person of character have weight. The Buddhist name for such a person is the Bodhisattva, the one dedicated to inner knowledge or the effects it can bring about in healing the world. That was very dense, huh? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, above, it said something about character, um, character and integrity develop over time. So above it says character is where spirit and soul meet, right? And this is a desirable phenomenon. But I'm just wondering, that makes it sound like it's something we acquire or learn as opposed to something we're born with. So I'm just curious how other people see that. Are we born with this ability and then go out of balance? Or is it really something we have to mature into? I don't know, because it looks like he says character and integrity develop with time. Mm -hmm. No, I'm just talking about character. That's where soul, oh, okay, you're saying with time. Oh. Well, you could still be born with it and, and it could still develop. Yeah. In Buddhist... Um, philosophy in the Abhidharma, they talk about these seeds uh, that are planted in the uh, deep in the unconscious that, that every experience creates one of these seeds. So you have a character for, even from previous lives that is the result of those seeds that were planted, those karmic seeds that were planted. And so we know, you know, we, we all have the experience of uh, Young children, surprisingly, having, you know, way more depth and wisdom and character than we might expect to find in a person that age, right? We also know that, um, that it, 
it's life experience that helps refine and shape character and actually um, cause it to blossom mm -hmm. and, and express itself. Thank you. Uh, I think it's Malen. As a culture, we're, we are at a stage in which the love, lovers of soul and the lovers of spirit are continually doing more of what they are already doing. Uh, I'm sorry, what they are all, I will go again. As a culture, we are at a stage in which the lovers of soul and the lovers of spirit are continually doing more of what they already do, meanwhile trying to convert each other. The deficiency in our culture may lie mainly in the realm of the soul, since we absolve ourselves of the soul's public tasks, such as educate, educating the children and caring for the poor and the immigrants. But merely to point out such deficiencies of soul does not achieve wholeness for the culture, and our attempts are remedy often make things worse. We have not yet found out what magic might happen, what might might magic might happen if we were to attend to the path of both spirit and soul. This if leads to a further picture of the development of the inner life. For when we go beyond the idea of a paleolithic wildness that lies close to the source of life, an image of we build and cultivate appears. Then, then the act of inner attention seems to create a medieval walled garden. It is hedged about with silence and stillness, but silence and stillness are not the heart of it. At the center is a fountain, and we see that everything has arranged itself around the water playing in the sunlight. Here is the source of the timelessness that is everywhere apparent. The more deeply we enter, the more the fountain soars above. Awe and wonder claim us, Bear and deer and wallaby, the soldier with his gun, the man with AIDS, hallucinating and skeletal on his deathbed, the child climbing a tree with her tongue thrust out to help her concentrate. All are joined in an incomprehensible and lovely orderliness. The sacred appears in each of life's creatures and the tenderness of this discovery turns us outwards. It asks that we learn how to live to make a particular path and fullness out of the spirit's eternity and silence. Claiming the dark. To learn how to live means claiming more of the territory of life, even or especially the darkness. When we begin our inward journey, we think it will be a continuous ascent. 
but we find that however well we try, we fall into pain, into the excruciating awareness that if we are human, we love. And, uh, and if we love, we are vulnerable. The darkness presses hard on us, turbulent, autonomous, full of obsession and loss. It seems greater than we are and has a mule-like resistance to common sense. As Jung remarked, everything unconscious returns as fate. At this time, we cling to the spirit. We will think that the fall itself is the problem. Spiritual traditions have a strong tendency to see things this way. The classical solution then known in monasteries around the world is to detach and so cease to suffer. But it is more, like, more likely that we pay too little attention to our pain that we are too eager to clamber back to the cool, pure heights and their certainties. Here in this human life, we share another kind of spirituality might serve us better. One that sees it is our, sees it as our very losses that save us by bringing the aspiring spirit downwards and initiating us into soul. This is why the way up into the true life begins with the way down. This revelation of the intimate closeness of beauty and suffering may unbalance our previous idea of order. It tells us that like Rilke in front of the archaic torso of Apollo, we must change our lives. We must learn to attend more acutely, to grope through the labyrinth, holding the thin twine of spiritual practice as we head into the dark. Through patient observation, then we find that it is our thoughts and feelings that make us happy or sad, that the quality of our attention changes the colors of the day. This discovery of the reality and then the cons consolation of the inner life is our one solution to the problem of suffering, which is also the problem of living up to the underlying and equally pervading happiness of life. The next chapter, Descent into Night, the first descent. Midway in the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood. Dante Alieri. The journey into life of awareness begins for most of us in a moment of helplessness. When our lives are going well, we do not feel any need to change them or ourselves. We are content, content to go on as we are, 
coasting Serena's planets in their orbits or caribou on seasonal migration. Our habits of mind are sufficient to sustain, sustain us through the days. We are unperturbed and half asleep. Then a crisis arrives. A child falls ill, a lover disappoints, or some vast neutral power of the earth, such as a hurricane or a fire, strips us of everything we have relied upon to stay the same. We will have other descents in life, but this first one has a terrifying vividness. Change is sure, and change brings suffering, which is an inner as well as outer event. Under the impact of a crisis, images we have worshipped, beliefs we have cherished, also break and fall away. We lose not only houses, photo albums, and people dear to us, but our idea of what life is. We find ourselves plunging, unprepared, a weakness in every limb. Yet, this unexpected fall is also a gift, not to be refused. An initiation ordeal preparing us for new life. The enveloping dark strips us of our sleepy-headedness, our assumption that who we are now and the life we know now will be enough. The night is not interested in our achievements. Pitching headlong into this first descent of the journey, we struggle, we suffer untellable grief, but we also wake up. We begin to see ourselves and our lives for what they are. We cannot return to the way it used to be even yesterday. We realize that we have no choice. Before we can rise up, we must go down and this is kind of unfortunate, isn't it? Sure. What do you mean? What? What do you mean? Oh, that we have to go through this. <laughs> well, if you didn't, you'd still be sleepwalking. <laughs> this is what he is teaching. And that the whole first, the whole part up, uh, up until this chapter is just prologue. Now this is very experiential from this point. Innocence. The unexpected means, the unexpected means misfortune from without. I Ching, commentary on the hexagram, innocence. <laughs> Descending, we leave behind the way we were. Everything we have experienced before this moment is transformed retrospectively into a bedtime story, a pastoral in which actions have no true consequences. <laughs> it seems that, like Persephone, Persephone. Yeah, Persephone, we have not until now really known loss, that dark soul over which we thinkingly walked. Now the earth has opened and swallowed us. We look back as we always do through the chasm and there we see the object of our longing. 
the blue sky, the white cluster of narcissists, the naive life that is leaving us. For innocence is close to reminiscence. When we have it, we are not aware of it. We long for it only when it is disappearing. The desire to wake up as from a bad dream, the phrase, if only, the bargaining with the gods, the yearning to return to the garden even as we are expelled. These thoughts and emotions fix on innocence, the lost, beloved condition. Innocence belongs to animals, children, forests. It is young, angelic, untouched vague. The uncarved block of the Taoist full of possibility because nothing has yet happened. A child watching a river may see and feel that everything flows. She merges with eternity. In this way, she lives effortless, effortlessly using the resources of the spirit. She pulls her arms in, kicks her legs out, and up she swings. She breaks sticks into pieces and floats them down the, the gutter. But her play is something she has found as a gift. Nothing of herself has yet been contributed to life. And so life as yet hardly sticks to her. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the unbaptized innocent are assigned a special antechamber of hell. They do not suffer there. They neither, uh, but neither do they taste the joy of heaven. Innocence is not conscious and does not really worship any God, being itself adrift in eternity. Innocence is, is, innocence is not aware of unease and whatever the soul might interpret as unease and seek causes for. Innocent, innocence knows only as a blink, a stutter, a moment of an interruption that has no story accompanying it because innocence is unacquainted with the night. Moral choice plays no role in its unfolding. We see innocence in others as an ideal and in seeing it this way, we can also maintain a certain distance from its beauty, fragility, and otherworldliness, which somehow disturb us. For the word innocent has a doubt, 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 double, sorry, always near it, has a double always near it, the word victim. The cemetery of the innocents in Paris was a place where the bones of those who died in the Black Death in the 13th century were thrown. Later in the 16th century, Andreas Basilius, a medical student at the University of Paris, studied these bones in the charnel house where they had been collected. His exploration was the beginning of a movement of consciousness downward into observation of the death 
and away from a learning base solely in the ancient texts. Basilus was to become the founder of modern anatomy. We might say that he brought this innocence back beyond bone by bone into the stream of knowledge, making a small piece of soul out of the devastation of ignorance that characterized the medieval place. Like Leonardo da Vinci before him, Vesalius extended his knowledge of anatomy by performing autopsies on corpses stolen from the public gallows. In his illustrations, the gaze of the anatomized is direct. They are not ashamed of being dead or mutilated. It is just their condition. Because he could meet the eyes of the dead, because he looked for himself, Vesalius was able to correct the work of Galen, the anatomist of Roman times. And brought by him into our gaze, the dead rejoin the living, no longer victims because they participate. Released from the purity conferred by death, they receive from us the honor due those who have lived out their fate, and we in turn are able to learn from them. The achievements of modern medicine depend on this learning. I think it's Drowdy. Yes, I'm just giving a pause. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I do have a, I do have a question. Mm -hmm. Does, is that does everybody understand how their bones participating in humanity makes them no longer victims? I'm just curious. Well, I understand what he's saying. And what is he saying? I don't really have an opinion about it, but I do understand what he's saying. Well, they were originally victims of the of the Black Plague. Right. And and now there's a usefulness to their bodies. But do they experience that usefulness? Yeah. I I think he's being poetic in that sense. No. I thought it was that he was talking about how. Vesalius was on a, he didn't um, look away from their condition. He tried to um, communicate their condition based on what he observed instead of ignoring and relying on past um, anatomical work. So he sat with the discomfort of their death. Yes. Yes, that's clear. I'll, I'll let it go. Oh, it's, so it's more, it's more, I think, an existential reality that they become they they have been uh, victims of the plague. They've been tossed in the charnel house, um, and um, and in this way, they step forward again and have um, uh, a presence in the world that they that they were denied before by th that victimization so they uh, almost a dignity because of what they offered in the way of teaching isn't it like uh, if you give your body parts to 
to someone else after you die. And then maybe you made nothing out of your life, but then that body part can be contribute in a different way. Sure. Well, he also says at the bottom uh, on page 30, released from the purity conferred by death, they receive from us the honor due to those uh, who have lived out their faith, etc., etc. So, I mean, he, in in my understanding, spells it out how they actually became purified before they could serve um, as samples for research, etc., etc. So is it me who is reading? I think so, yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. the, fall, the fall opens for the innocent the possibility of choice. I think of a woman had been an airy, talented girl, a beauty who studied art but walked within a disorienting clamor of suitors. When she was young, her hallways had been stacked with bouquets. There was a flow of small packages containing diamond earrings and emerald tennis bracelets. And once there was a large mirror cloth elephant. She married one of the senders of beautiful things and had three children, but no longer cultivated art <coughs> beyond her ability, admittedly extraordinary, to reflect back the image of the other before her. Her mother, also a great beauty, had gone mad at the onset of age, starting a new career of imaginative invalidism, and that might have been this woman's fate as well. But then a fortunate thing happened. Her husband left. <laughs> <laughs> The woman was helpless at first. Because her husband had been the center of her life, she did not feel her existence had enough weight to continue on its own. She did not know what she wanted, nor had she developed the capacity to stay with the dilemma long enough to make an informed choice. Yet this disaster was also her chance. Her loss and her freedom to make a life of her own were the same. Her husband, going off with a younger one with the younger women to start another family was perhaps worse off since he was only repeating the one song he had learned 20 years before slowly painfully she began to paint to construct a life of her own to leave her innocence behind The innocence does not learn, for if she does, she has become experienced. This leads us to the shadowy double of the innocent, the criminal or the rascal who cannot learn 
consequences. A salesman sells stock that plumped, but calls up the customer again with a new sure thing, as if the customer were incapable of learning too. This marquee figure is also the grifter, the addict. Many children steal a little from their mother's purses, perhaps because they do not quite see their mother as a separate being. Most of these children grew up to have their purses raided in turn. But then there is another child who mysteriously doesn't grow up. When he's 50 years old, he's still stealing from his mother's purse to buy drugs, still plausibly offering that she might have miscounted or that if not, he's thinking of attending Narcotics Anonymous. Don Juan is another form of this perennial child pursuing the new pure love and sold by familiarity. His promiscuity is a quest against mortality for renewal and yet more renewal in the hope that everything should be as it was at the beginning of the world. Not yet fallen, he's also not quite human. Uh, we are at 8.04. Should we go to night, Harold? Yeah. Okay. What, what are we doing? I'm marking the time and oh okay you're, you're, are you skipping over the these last two paragraphs no no oh okay okay so i should read yes okay but in the end everyone wants to be human this is why innocence seems so linked to its opposite seems to attract the malign powers and to be complicit in its own undoing Persephone must rush toward the scented white narcissus blossom and tumble into the chasm that Hades has made. Psyche must listen to her spiteful sisters, light the lamp above the head of Cupid and destroy the life she knows. Innocence, consciously or not, longs to experience, longs to be different from itself. So true. Still, how can we fail to treasure our first paradise? As we fall, it is glimpsed by our backward gaze as something not appreciated before it was lost. But we will see it again in another form. For innocence is a foretaste of developed spirituality. And this spirituality draws us and makes us afraid. Innocence is listening to a music that we recollect but that our daily getting and spending obscure until we can barely make it out. We fear the worldly doom that comes over those who listen too fervently to that music, 
even as we long to hear it plain and clear. But for now, as we consider the departure of innocence, we must be content to enter consciousness and its journey, a long circumnavigation through darkened lands until we may return changed to the effortlessness of the spiritual point of view. So here we will pause and uh, we will return after a break for 10 minutes. Some people like to sit and some people like to write and we'll come back and share whatever you would like to share. Welcome back. Does anyone want to share anything? Peg raised your hand. Uh, oh, wait here. Okay. I forgot I didn't start my video. <laughs> Back up. Here we go. Yeah. I did write something, and it's, it's a reflection about the, um, the book itself. Um, so what I said was, in John Terrence's The Light Inside the Dark, the language is what I've come to think of as cosmopoetry, like the songs of enlightenment in our tradition, or like Lex Hickson's Mother of the Buddhas, where this kind of language was given its name. We are carried as much by the melody of it and its exquisite evocation of experience as by some rational sense-making. In fact, it utterly defeats rational sense-making, yet it is not chaotic, senseless, or irrational. To appreciate it is like going to a symphony or a ballet. You must allow yourself to be immersed in it completely, feeling it rather than understanding it. It is not to be learned from so much as recognized, savored, and felt. It is as true as the rain and as meaning-free. If you read it, you'll begin speaking like this, thinking like this, and it will surprise you that you have this coming through you too. You can construct no argument for or against it or any of its parts because it does not live in the realm of argument. It lives in the fabric of human being. So maybe you do not experience its majestic music, just as you may go to an opera, even a great opera, and be bored. It's okay. But we cannot demand that such texts conform to some intellectual arena of debate and philosophical speculation. If you have experienced what he's writing about, you will recognize it immediately. If you have not yet experienced it, keep the book handy for when you do. You won't remember its specificities, only that it is an exquisite map. Four stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it answers my question actually because I was during the first few chapters, those two chapters, I was trying to uh, very much understand some of those 
keywords that he's using, like the spirit, soul, or um, innocence. And yeah, I, I was just afraid that I will be missing his point if I do not deeply understand what he means by those um, definitions. But from what I heard from Peg is that it's not probably very much needed to deeply understand what does he mean? It's just should enjoy <laughs> the writing. And I think the whole rest of the book is um, the expression of what he means by those things. So he's unfolding it from there. So, um, so if you're patient, um, you'll see that oh, this is how this, these meanings flow from the. He's setting up these terms in the beginning, but he, now he's going to show you how those meanings flow from those terms, not a strict definition like you would have in a dictionary or something like that. Which is like life, kind of, right? Right. It's sort of like an experience in and of itself of being yes. innocent and then becoming, ex having experience. Right. Right. Before you pick up the book, you're innocent, right, of anything that's in it. But you're drawn to it, right, just in the same way innocence is drawn to experience. Yeah. So, so William Blake had this sequence of going from innocence to experience to organize innocence. And it seems like the innocence he's talking about, you know, as, as adults, the, that experience has to be organized innocence. We have to go through experience, which is the dark part. That's right. And so it's, you know, he's going to lay out in exquisite detail, really the depths of that darkness. And, um, and it's a very um, powerful, I would say. And so um, you have to be prepared for that. That's what he's trying to prepare you for. Is he's really, it, it can all, could only ever be written by someone who had experienced those depths. And so for me, it's a great and heartening um, evocation for people who have ever gone through that or ever will go through that darkness where you think, you know, everything has abandoned you. But to say anything positive about the darkness is a little bit dismisses. You know, with, uh, I was well, writing to someone today who's 78, who's had lots and lots of darkness. And he was a little, I think, put off, even though he knew where I was coming from by that, you know, the richness that comes from it. Right. So, so this is the point of being sensitive to the people who are to whoever is in whatever experience they're in of being more curious about how is this for you than trying to impose some uh, wisdom or words of wisdom or some advice. Um, but really, how is this for you? Is just like almost the perfect question. Um, and in this book, he's really, you're really walking with him down into it and recognizing, oh, this is the reality of the way this moves. But the turn is really at the point, at the darkest point, when he says, this is when you make a choice. You make a choice whether you are going to be a victim or whether you are going to be a pilgrim. 
And that to me is a very powerful moment of agency, right? And then- yeah, I think this is, uh, this is a lesson that I've started to learn about how sometimes the pain, the loss of the innocence is not so painful as the resistance to your pilgrimage. The pain you know? of it, right, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and I and I thought, well, you know, this book has a lot of um, darkness built into it. It's the light inside the dark. So first, he's got to build to this uh, world in a way that you recognize the darkness, um, and then he's going to have to um, uh, sort of manifest how you move through that experience in a way that is actually spiritually enriching. Um, so. And I always feel like if I look back in my life, all, you know, a whole series of big catastrophes ultimately had to break me out of a trance of this sort of status quo, which was comfortable, happy, wonderful life um, to, to launch a new, entirely new way of life. Uh, but I could never have gotten there without something breaking that world apart because it was just too comfortable too idyllic in certain ways. And that's what he's talking about, the innocence, you know, like we look back on it in this, this golden way, right? Um, it's uh, beautiful, sunny days, but, um, but then something happens. And, and then you start to see, well, that had to happen in order for this to happen, in order for this to happen, in order for me to get here. Well, I wrote about this. Did you? Yeah, and I have a drawing. Oh, yeah. good. So that's the drawing. Uh huh. And it's actually, if you could see the other side, it's a two headed nickel. Uh huh. But you can't see the other side. <laughs> In, innocence is vulnerable. I run home asking for $2 to buy a rare coin from a friend. I'm sure it is worth thousands. I take it home and show my mom the rare two headed nickel. Our house is dark, and not until morning do I see it as two coins soldered together. My excitement wanes. If only I had looked more carefully, I went from a kid to something else. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember exactly in Chicago what street, what where on the street I was when I met the guy in the street, had the coin. I remember a magician showing me a magic trick and then showing me the the trick behind the trick. Oh no. And it was so sad, but I remember him also saying, "No, stay in the magic." <laughs> That's stay it. Stay in the yeah. moment. But you don't get to. That's the difference between innocence and experience, right? Yeah. Yeah, you don't get to stay in the magic. Yeah, was that when I saw the solder on the edge of the coin? That that was where I lost it. <laughs> lost right my <laughs> but this ha- you know this happens continually you know throughout our lives um and we you know even when we think we're experienced and wise even when we think oh i kind of got this these things figured out i kind of figured out how to build a life and what to do and yeah Well, I'm curious what people are thinking so far about this book. 
if it's resonating with you or if you're I'm fascinated by it and I'm really excited because the darkness, I mean, I only know my own darknesses, but they're huge in shaping me and yet nobody talks about it. Yeah. Um, It's not the kind of conversation people usually have. And um, also the book is so visceral that I feel like I am experiencing it. And it's not up here. Well, if I try to put it up here, it doesn't really make that much sense. But when I feel it down here, it's, it's like, yes. Oh, yes. A- absolutely. And that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, um, I'm really interested. I thought the thing that surprised me about it is um, usually we think of the spiritual journey as a, you know, a sort of ascent towards the light. That's sort of this unbroken ascent towards the light. And um, any, if you read the lives of any religious figures, there are times of deep, deep darkness, um, even when they're quite accomplished or even, you know, supposedly enlightened. So it's good that um, we have something that gives this kind of account, because I think people feel like they're failing or like something's wrong because they're not, you know, making the steady march toward the light and not ever experiencing a moment of darkness once they, you know, get their feet on the path. Mm. So, yeah, it's very helpful. I mean, I find that Zazen has been accelerating my capacity and propensity for unveiling myself and seeing my own darkness over and over again um and and not in a bad way i mean it's like oh this is something i've been ignoring you know how can i how can i make any choice if i don't even acknowledge that this is this is so that's just my experience right now yeah Well, I think we're at the end of our time, right? Is that is that true? Yeah, but Emily's our fearless leader. Oh, yes, I was giving space to anybody. <laughs> Any last parting words? Anybody? <laughs> Apparently, you have to wait three minutes for people who don't normally <laughs> talk. Let them talk. So, uh, but yeah, it's everyone's good. Okay. All right. See you. Hope to see you all next week. So delighted everybody showed up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Bye.